Uh, we're 30-something uh, sermons in, and uh, we're about to take a break and, uh, uh, and pick up some other stuff. So, uh, but here's what's going on in Acts. Acts is, uh, begins in chapter 1 with Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not ascended into heaven yet. He's given some final words to his uh, disciples, the apostles, the first apostles. And he said, hey, wait here for the Holy Spirit to fill you. And when the Holy Spirit does come and fill you, would you be my witnesses? Uh, here in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the other in, uttermost parts of the earth. And what you see throughout the book of Acts is that people begin to respond to the apostles and the early Christians in the same way that they responded to Jesus when he was alive here on earth. And the first half of the book of Acts, really, chapters 1 to 12, Peter's really uh, is, is center stage. And then Paul becomes center stage in chapter 13. And we're at the end of chapter 13 uh, today. And uh, chapter 13, what's happened is that uh, uh, Barnabas and Paul have been set aside as the first missionaries uh, in the church of Antioch. Antioch is in the very uh, northernmost part of Syria, kind of southernmost part of Turkey. And, uh, and they're about 15 miles from the coast. And when they get sent out as missionaries, they go straight 15 miles west to the coast. They hop in their boat. They go to this, uh, this little island out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea called Cyprus, about 60 miles off the coast. And they preach the gospel all throughout that whole island. This is where Barnabas is from. There's some Jews there. There's some Gentiles there. And Paul, you begin, you begin to see him shine in his preaching there. That some people reject the gospel. Some people receive the gospel. That's what we heard last week. And they move on from Cyprus and they go north, due north uh, into Turkey. And they go to these three cities, uh, Perga, Pamphylia, and they go to Pisidian of Antioch. Now, Pisidian Antioch is not the same as Antioch. And Pisidian Antioch is where, where our text takes place today. Uh, and when they get to Pisidian Antioch, Peter, or, or, uh, Paul preaches this sermon. He preaches a very Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. You can read it from about verse 16 down to about verse 39. We're not going to look at that today. And then he puts it on the hearers. And he says, now that you've heard about this Jesus, it's now up to you whether you're going to believe in Jesus or not. Well, some of these people on this Sabbath, they loved what they, what they heard. And they said, we would love to have you come back next week. And for the rest of that week, Paul and Barnabas preach all over Pisidian Antioch, and they come back. And that's what we see starting in verse 42. Uh, so let's read it together, and then we'll pray. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's what I just told you. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that's the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul just quotes what we read, what Betsy read earlier from Isaiah 49. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we are not relying just on um, our cognitive abilities to understand with our brains what happens in this passage. We need much more. We need you, your spirit, to enter in uh, to our hearts with this text and go to work. And so, Lord, would you make us more like you uh, because we've been here tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I know that many of you have uh, very strong feelings about our president. Uh, but this has always been true with presidents. You either, you either loved the W or you hated the W. Uh, you either loved Obama or you hated Obama. You either love Trump or you hate Trump. But regardless of what your opinion of the president is or past president, we really do have a hard time understanding that these people are real human beings. And by saying they're real human beings, I'm saying with real human relationships. Now, I, again, I don't care which of those presidents you like. There is something where uh, at least they're doing a good job faking it, where their kids are at least somewhat affectionate with their dad as president. You see some sense of warmth uh, from their, the wives of the president to their husband. You get some sense that their families actually kind of care about them a little bit. But then you see this other side of them, this non-personal side. You begin to see the media interact with them sometime with great angst. You see the, their staffers or other politicians who are part of their party. They respond to them with great respect. And then you got this growl from the other party of those politicians. You see, all these different people relate to the president very differently based on what, might you say? Well, based on the relationship that they have to the president. That's how. That's how they should relate to him. You, you might say, well, I wish everybody just, re- just responded to the president the same. No, you don't. And they don't either. That's not how reality plays out. Not just with the president. We could say the same thing about you. And we certainly can say the same thing about the life of Jesus. People respond differently to Jesus based on the kind of relationship that they have with him. And when you get to the book of Acts, you begin to see the same dynamic take place. Because what Jesus has done is he's filled the church with his spirit And now the gospel is being responded to in this whole myriad of ways and acts just as it was in the days of Jesus. In fact, if you begin to take up the life of the gospel in your life, people are going to begin to respond to you in the same way that they did to Jesus in the same way they did to the Christians in Acts. You might think that's dreadful misery. You might think that might sound constrictive. You might think that that means that everyone's going to despise you, while others of you think just the opposite. You think it's going to lead to instant success. You think it's going to lead to universal acclaim. And what Acts chapter 13, especially the passage we just read, it reorients us. It helps us see things clearly. And so what we see in our passage are really three groups of people and how they respond to the gospel. First, you've got the Jewish leaders. You see them? You see them there in 45 through 40. Then you see the new converts in 48 and 49. And then you see in 51 and 52, you want to find my jokes? Or the, 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 the two preachers there are joyful, okay? So you've got those who are jealous, those who are justified, and those who are joyful. All right, let's start with the jealous people. Uh, you've got on this second Sabbath, uh, comes back, and I think a way larger crowd of people show up 
for this for this Sabbath than Paul and Barnabas even dreamed of in their wildest imagination. The people who heard them on Sabbath day one must have really liked them, and they spread the word in a vicious fashion. And so it says, Luke says right there in, for, in, uh, in verse 44, that almost the whole city gathers. And what's really interesting are the type of people who gather for this service. We find out that the people who are gathered there are... Um, are, are adult converts to Judaism. They were born Gentiles, and they become Jews. And these were the people who, just not just here in Pisidian Antioch, but in the rest of all the churches that Paul plants, these are the people most apt to respond positively to the gospel. In many ways, they are the foundation, they are the, the nucleus of every one of his church plants. Guess who hates that? The Jewish leaders. They've been spending the last decade, the last several decades, trying to convert these daggum Gentiles into Judaism. And now here comes Paul, who's stealing their sheep. He's poaching their ministry spoils. And he's building churches with them. So naturally, they're jealous. Now, before you get too hard on these Jewish leaders, let me remind you that jealousy at the success is sadly a common human failing, but it's especially one for religious leaders. This thing called jealousy, it's so well known among us that one novelist said this, Gore Vidal said, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. I'll say it again. Every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. See, jealousy's got this whole idea of I want. It's got the I want that anger has, but then it takes a step further. It tacks on something about ownership and possession. So it doesn't just say I want. It says I deserve this. It says it's rightly mine and... You don't deserve it. So jealousy wants something for itself, and it also stands against the person who possesses it. There's a great illustration of this in 1 Kings 3. In 1 Kings 3, you've got King Solomon. And King Solomon has two women who come to him with a baby. Both of these women are claiming to be the baby's mother. Solomon hears the whole case, and then he says... Uh, you're going to divide that living child into two. Give one half of the child to this woman and the other half to this woman. That was his resolution for this conflict. And the true mother of these two children rises up and she says, no, 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 no. Give this baby to this woman. The false mother says, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. So Solomon responds and says, Give the child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She's the mother. See, that's what jealousy does. It seeks position, or it seeks possession, and it usually demands fairness. See, half and half is what sounds fair, doesn't it? And when we demand fairness as one of our core values, jealousy is sure to follow. And we respond to this perceived unfairness with quiet grumblings. We say things like, I deserve this, but you don't deserve it. 
And when we say I don't deserve, when, when I say I deserve this, it comes with this swagger of entitlement. See, jealousy makes us say things, makes us forget that we deserve death for our rebellious ways. It makes us forget that the only thing we've got going for us is the grace of God. So where do you see jealousy in your life? For those of us who are in ministry, it's probably the same as religious leaders. We see jealousy at other people's success. That might be true in your workplace, by the way. For some of us, it comes with our kids. We're jealous of other parents who have much better behaved children than we do. And we think that we've worked so much harder than they have to get our kids like this. Maybe it's your grades. Maybe you're jealous of someone else's grades because they don't put in nearly the hours you do and you don't get the grades they do. Maybe it's the size of your house. Maybe you think you deserve to be a homeowner by now. Maybe you think you're on to your forever house by now and it just hasn't happened yet. And anybody who is a homeowner before you or has their forever house before you do, you're jealous. Maybe it has something to do with your figure. Maybe it has something to do with your title at work. Maybe it has something to do with your income level. But what the gospel does is it enters into our jealousy and it will not allow for any shred of it to exist within us. Because what the gospel tells us is that we have every spiritual blessing that's in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. And in Ephesians 1 begins to list out what every one of those spiritual blessings are. It's redemption. It's forgiveness of sins. It's adoption. It's election. It's being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we enjoy these. They're ours. And when we get jealous about someone else's success, when we get jealous of someone else getting married before we do, when we get jealous of someone else having their first child before we do, it's just evidence that we're undervaluing our standing in the gospel. And the Jewish leaders are jealous. But that's not the only response that Paul and Barnabas have in this passage. We see that the other response is that some are justified before God because of the gospel. You see in verse 48 and 49, some of the people who heard the gospel in, 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 in 42 through 44 respond positively, not negatively. The Jewish leaders might think that this is distasteful, but there's some, some of these, uh, these adult Jewish converts from being a Gentile they hear it and they believe it. And when Paul and Barnabas see this dynamic happening, that Gentiles are coming to faith before the Jews are, they give this theological rationale for why they've turned from the Jews toward the Gentiles. See, the Jews have rejected the word of God here in Pisidian Antioch. They've judged themselves, therefore they can't receive eternal life. And then the Gentiles, on the other hand, they show that they're destined for eternal life because they're glorifying this same word of the Lord. But put yourself in Paul and Barnabas' shoes. Wouldn't it be easy for them to get stuck on the Jews? I mean, after all, Paul Paul and Barnabas, these are their people. You know they desperately want these people to share in the life of Jesus that they've been sharing in. You know that it's going to be tempting for them to belabor the gospel and for them to never get around to the Gentiles. I mean, these are magical teachers, especially Paul, and surely he would be able to take the Old Testament that the Jews know so well, and he's going to begin to draw lines to Jesus. He's going to say, hey, remember the story about Adam. Let me draw the line toward Jesus. 
Do you remember the story about Moses? Let me draw the line towards Jesus. You know the story about David? I'll draw the line towards Jesus. Abraham, line towards Jesus. The prophets, line towards Jesus. And they'd want to stay there and debate with them, to do apologetics with them, to teach the scriptures to them. But they don't. They give them their chance. The Jews reject the gospel. And so they move on to the Gentiles. I think this is really instructive for us as we think about a life of proclaiming the gospel to those around us. When you begin to think of yourself as just a normal, plain-jane Christian, a person who doesn't do this vocationally, you begin to see the, the, the faces of the people you know that sure do seem disinterested in the things of the Christian faith. You, th- you see your neighbors, you see your family members, you see your friends, you see your co-workers, and you're either overly pessimistic or overly optimistic. You either believe that everyone who hears you share the gospel with them is going to respond positively, or you think that there's no way anybody ever would. But this account right here, and lots of other in the books of, book of Acts, are, it's highly instructive for us. Because it shows us what we are to expect. We're to expect that some will believe and they'll be justified, and others won't believe and they're going to remain condemned. But if you're overly pessimistic, you need to realize that it's highly likely that one of the people that you've already written off as a lost cause, that they're actually very ripe for hearing the good news and responding positively to it. If you're overly optimistic, you need to realize that it's highly likely that one of the people that you think is a shoe in for conversion because you've lived so well in their presence. You've prayed for them so faithfully for so many weeks and months and perhaps even years that surely they'll respond to the gospel. My well, friend, you need to realize that person may not only reject you, but reject the gospel. But whether it's rejection or acceptance, these really don't have anything to do with your presentation of the gospel. They really have everything to do about the gospel itself. So we've looked at People who receive the gospel here uh, in verses 40 and 49. We've looked at those who reject it and are jealous. Now there's this last group of people. You've got Paul and Barnabas himself. Not just the hearers of this word, but you also have the preachers. And when you get the preachers down in 51 and 52, you see what these two verses give us a window into what gospel ministry can be like. Well, for one thing that we need to know is that Paul and Barnabas, they don't take this rejection personally. You notice what they do. They shake the dust off their feet. This was Jesus' teaching. He taught this in all three, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can find passages where Jesus says, go into towns, proclaim the good news of the kingdom to them. And if they don't hear it, shake the dust off your feet and leave that town. And so really, Paul and Barnabas are just following Jesus' words. But Jesus is getting this practice of shaking the dust off your feet from the Jewish culture. See, Jewish culture, they would enter into a pagan town, where they would come back from the pagan town into their town, before they would cross the line, they would take their shoe and they would wipe the dust off of it so they could enter their pure city because they've been with impure non-worshippers for however long. And so when Paul and Barnabas are shaking the dust off their feet, it's deeply telling because what they're telling them is that they've rejected the gospel and they're proving that they're not really part of God's chosen people like they think they are. But is this how we respond when people reject the gospel? 
don't we usually have our feelings hurt? Don't we usually just hang in there for eternity, waiting for the rejection to turn to reception? Well, friend, I can't tell you the line (laughs) of when this is. Remember, all I know is Heidelberg Catechism, question one. That's all I got going for me. But there comes a point when we walk away and we realize the seeds that we've sown, only God can make grow. But notice their other posture. Their other postures are full of joy. How can they be so full of joy? They just get kicked out of town by a bunch of angry women. Well, I'm sure part of their joy, I'm sure part of it comes from they just see a whole bunch of people come to faith. Wouldn't that be exciting? But I think something deeper is going on here. That they're rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer the same fate as Jesus. They remember that Jesus has suffered for doing what the Father had called them to do. And now they get to participate in those very same sufferings. What a privilege. What a privilege to be united to Jesus and suffer on behalf of the one who's loved you and who's given himself for you. But I think it goes even deeper than that. I think there's another reason why they're joyful. And I think when you think about gospel ministry, it's real easy to see how gospel ministry brings God glory. It's real easy to see how gospel ministry is good for other people. But the often neglected part in view in doing ministry is the one doing ministry. See, gospel ministry brings us joy, and that's why we should do it. That's our motivation. See, 1 Corinthians 9, 23 is one of my favorite verses. And it starts out like this. It says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And then Paul gives a reason. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that. Well, what do you expect him to say? I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that some might be saved. Right? Isn't that what you expect him to say? I, I, I do this all for the sake of the gospel so that God might be glorified. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that. I might share with them in its blessings. In other words, he's saying, I do it selfishly. I want the joy that's associated with proclaiming Jesus Christ to the world. So why should you do it? We should do it for God's glory. You should do it for other people's benefit. But you should do it because you're going to begin to see new contours of the gospel in fresh ways as you do this ministry, and what it's going to bring you are these new installments of joy. You should do it for the good of others. You should do it for God's glory, but you should be selfish in some ways and do it for your own joy, Christian. So friends, don't be surprised when some are jealous because of the gospel. Don't be surprised when some people are justified before a holy God because of the gospel. And don't be surprised when you are overwhelmed with the joy of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we uh, so badly want to be a part of your mission in the world. Uh, So, Lord, would you uh, compel us? Uh, Would you do the unexpected? Would you make resurrection spring up for what we thought only crucifixion could happen?